welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. It's week three of Advent, and it's all about joy. Pastor Ben Pitney has a message titled Joyful Worship. Join us in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. In our journey through Advent, ending up at Christmas, today our theme is joy. And so um, I asked Brandon and Elizabeth to uh, talk about joy just for a little bit, but I wanted to make sure I kind of address something about joy and a little bit of confusion when it comes to joy. Um, Happiness and joy are two different things. And we get them all mixed up. Joy is actually a command, and happiness isn't a command. And you can find throughout the scriptures, um, like Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, it's a command. Or rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ. Also, joy is something that you, um, that holds on, that hangs on, right? It's, it, it, it becomes entrenched in your life. And happiness is kind of hot and cold and inconsistent. Um, happiness it can be a solitary emotion, an alone emotion. But rejoicing is a, a community activity. And happiness is from the world, joy is from Christ. So there's a big difference between being joyful and rejoicing and being happy And one of the things I was asking you, Elizabeth, is what keeps you from experiencing joy or satisfaction? So um, a lot of times when you're talking about something like joy, if we talk about the things that keep us from joy, it kind of gives us some insight to things, right? Yeah, so joy, um, I think there are times where we have hardship, we have trouble. Um, It can sometimes be easier to lose our joy, so to speak, in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. But then there are other times where we just get so busy, we put so much on our plate that we can become overwhelmed. And it's in those times that if we don't remember that our joy doesn't come from us and who we are, the things we accomplish, um, but or just our circumstance, our joy actually comes from the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and our relationship with him. And if we don't um, take the steps to be intentional and maintain that relationship, then we can very easily lose our joy under any type of circumstance. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure about Brandon, but I know about me and you, and we, we're kind of on the edge of, if not perfectionists, right? And so the details, the details are like, if they, things don't go exactly like we plan it, then oh, we lose it, right? And I don't know if we're losing our joy or losing our mind, but that's what happens, right? And it, wow, because of all this stuff, right? It can just really rob you of that. So Brandon, uh, what about you? Where do you find joy and satisfaction as a family? And in order to be encouraged and to encourage, because you got to lead the perfectionist and everybody else, right? Yeah, I'm definitely not a perfectionist. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, to, to the point that been made, you know, Joy and happiness um, are, are very different things, right? And so cir- circumstances in life uh, can create a, a situation where, like, we're not necessarily happy, but we can have joy, right? <clears throat> in, our, in our situation, 
We've na- this last handful of years has been pretty crazy. We've navigated through a few things. Uh, death of my, my younger brother, death of my father, and then uh, just most recently the adoption of a, a family member's um, baby. And so like all of those are just like, ooh, these are hard, these are difficult. And so it's, I, wouldn't, I would certainly say it didn't bring us happiness, but in the midst of it we can have joy. Um, and, and that comes from the proximity we are with the Lord. And a scripture that, um, that just brings that um, to the forefront is uh, Psalm 16, 11. It says, you lead me in the path of life. I experience absolute joy in your presence. You always give me sheer delight. And so we focusing on being close to the Lord and being intentional about being in, in his word and in relationship with him individually as well as as, as a group. Um, you know, we, we uh, are really adamant and push this hard. Community groups are a big deal. Um, that's where we can get together with other Christ followers and be encouraged as well as um, encourage them. Well, and joy is fleshed out and experienced in community. It is. It, it just is. So, um, so Elizabeth, what brings the most joy at Christmas with you guys? Oh man, I love Christmas so much. Um, so for us, we love doing our Christmas card. Um, it's a very joyful thing, sometimes awkward, um, for us, but, um, we we have, (laughs) absolutely, but it looks like it's more fun to make it than it is anything else. It is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we have this tradition that we do with our kids through the month of December, starting December 1st. And going through the 25th, we do the Jesse Advent Tree. So every night we um, come together as a family. We have a devotional. We look at scripture. And we start in Genesis with the story Mm -hmm. of creation. And every night um, there's a different account through the Bible leading up to the birth of Jesus. And it helps us as a family to not just connect together, but also to keep our focus um, where it should be during this busy season. Oh, man, the intentionality is a big deal, right? So are there some steps that you take as a family to choose joy even when it's hard, Brandon? Yeah, so um, this was a, when we were given this list of questions, this was probably the most revealing and reflective one where it's like, man, how, how is it that we, um, we should be doing this better and, um, and focusing on it? I mean, certainly, you know, we've navigated, like I said, we've navigated through some, some difficult things over these last handful of years. And we're intentional about talking with our kids through those and helping them understand, you know, crazy stuff happens in life. Um, but you, being focused on the Lord is what brings us joy and, um, and really grounds us. Uh, but we could be a lot more intentional about um, carrying that through the rest of the year and not just waiting for that junk to happen to have those conversations, but, um, but be more intentional about um, that one-on-one time with the Lord, with our, with our family. With our yeah, kids. it shouldn't be just this time of year that we are being intentional about um, our relationship with the Lord and community and all these things that were, um, yeah, it's, it's the rest of the year, right? <laughs> There's, it's in June when it's hot and it's 110 and it's not Christmas uh, kind of thing, right? Um, that's really great, you guys. I appreciate your family and just taking a few minutes with us today. Thank you. Now take your Bible out and turn to Matthew chapter 2 and let's talk a little bit more about joy and some other things uh, I, I'm really excited about this message um, today. There's, there's different messages. I love teaching. I love digging in. Um, but I want to draw the truth out of the text. And I think you're going to see some things a little bit different in Matthew's Christmas um, story and the, the things that he highlights in his gospel as opposed to Luke um, or Mark. Matthew focuses a little bit differently, and he has a little bit different agenda and p- different people that he's talking to. And so there are five truths 
that Matthew wants us to see in this story about Christ and actual joyful worship. One of the things that we'll get to eventually is gift giving. And so there's a scene here where you see the wise men bring gifts to Jesus in worship. And we're going to kind of look at that scene. Matthew highlights that. And have you noticed at Christmas time, uh, gifts are a big deal. And you got to be pretty good, all right, to understand it because there are things about gifts as the giver, and then there are things about getting gifts. And so everybody has a little bit different expectation about the gifts and about the things. Sometimes I nail it and I get it right with Linda, and other times I'm like, oh man, I miss that. I did not see that coming. Where um, the container the gift is in and how it's presented and packaged is more important than I thought it was most times, right? Maybe, maybe you know, some of you, you know, should have somebody else wrap your gifts. And that's why I love the Christmas bag. <laughs> oh, the Christmas bag does not matter to me how much it costs. Because it looks good. And you can cover it all up with some of that tissue paper, right? And then there it is. The Christmas bag is awesome. But it's not the same as tearing open the gift or a box, right? And uh, recently, Linda and I were in, uh, visiting my daughter in San Clemente. It's in Southern California. It's right on the beach. We love it. We rent an Airbnb because it's better and than staying at their place, that kind of thing. And so, because so, it's so small and it's close to the beach. Oh, man, it's so great. But this year, we get to our Airbnb, and it's kind of right downtown. And you can walk around and everything. We get in there, and it's nice, but it smells like cleaner chemicals, right? It's clean, but, man, it smells like it's clean. That's for sure. And so we're kind of like, whoa, that's pretty hefty cleaning smell. And so um, I said, I know what to do. And there was a, there's a little, it's, it's like an upstairs little apartment kind of thing downtown. It's super cool. Right next to the Airbnb is this boutique, right, where there's all kinds of things in there that are pretty and small and cost like eight times more than they should. And I noticed it's full of candles. So I'm like, I'll go get a candle, right? And I go in there and there's like a thousand candles. And I'm like, what's the cheapest candle? And the lady's like, oh, here's one for $50. And I'm serious, $50. And she says, oh, your wife will love this. I'm like, how do you know my wife? Uh, what do you know? What did, what did she call? It's, it's in a container that when you're done with a candle, it becomes like a little jewelry box. It's got a lid, and it's so cute. And I'm like, oh. This is terrible. I know she's going to love this. And all I need is a candle that smells better than Clorox, right? So, so, so anyway, I, I'm like, it's Christmas. And I drop the 50 bucks on the candle. And I take it upstairs. And of course, yeah, oh, man, the candle. And the container, who cares what it smells like? It smells like apple pie, by the way. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> apple pie and Clorox. Oh, but the container. She's enamored with the container. I love Linda. She likes the little things. It's delicate. It is, you know, kind of cool. All right. So we lit that thing all weekend for like three or four days, and it smelled like apple pie in there. And eventually the Clorox went away. But 
at the end of the thing, I'm thinking, oh, the lady downstairs says, when you're done with a candle, you can, you know, clean it out. Well, getting wax out of the little thing, that's a job. So, I, I don't know, after about 30 minutes, I feel like I got it pretty good. And, um, but in the process of just, you know, oh, man, I probably clogged up the sink with candle wax, but... Um, there was this little ribbon around on the top of the lid, right? And a little cool ribbon with a little antique-looking thing that said Merry Christmas. It was really cool, but I got it wet, right? So I cut that off of there, threw that away, and I'm like, it's the container. It's the container. And sure enough, it sits there, and I go, honey, I clean out the container, and what does she say? Where's the ribbon? Well, the ribbon? I could tie anything on there. I could put a bread tie on there. I mean, come on. With a ribbon, it's the container. I spent all this time in the container. And, and it's the ribbon. I mean, the disappointment in her voice and the sadness in her eyes is like I destroyed the whole thing. What did you do? $50 for a three-cent ribbon at best, right? I biffed it, right? And... And so I found, uh, recently I found a ribbon and tied on that thing, and it's, of course, it's not the right one. <laughs> it's not antique looking, and it didn't come with it, and I, I, I don't know, I might as well just throw it away, right? Just get rid of the whole thing and go back to San Clemente and buy another one with the ribbon on it, and just leave the candle in there, all right? Why? Gift-giving just stresses everybody out. It's a big deal, and, and you've got to pay attention to the gift stuff, and it can dominate. It puts all kinds of pressure on things. I think the gift-giving is important, and, and quite honestly, this is a scene where it's sort of this tr- tradition kind of emerges, but I think there's something about the gifts that the wise men bring that you may not have thought about, and I'm going to try to point that out today. I mean, there is something about the frankincense and myrrh and gold, and, and they do represent things. I'm not even going to go there. And, and, and burial spices and things like that, of course. But I think there's more. Let's read this story together, and then let's, let's, um, let's draw the truth out of the text. Matthew chapter 2, and there's 12 verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, In the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where's the one who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed and all Jerusalem with him. You know what? That's... I haven't noticed that part right there very much. I think that's worth looking at. All Jerusalem with him, they were alarmed as well. Anyway, verse 4, after assembling all the chief priests and the experts in the law, those are the scribes, right? He asked them where the Christ was to be born. This is Messiah. Verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for it's written this way by the prophet. Now, the, the, the prophet is Micah. So you reach back into the Old Testament, and it says, As you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod privately summoned his wise men and determined from them when the star um, had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and look carefully for the child. And when you find him... Inform me so that I can go and worship him as well. 
and we know that he's a big liar, all right? So that's not really what he wants to do. Now look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they left, and once again the star they saw, when it rose, led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. And as they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. I love this. Now let's look at the five truths that we can draw the text. I think they're pretty cool regarding worship and joyfully worshiping. Remember, joy, joy is different than happiness. And I think it's important when it comes to worship. So the, my first point here is Jesus is the Christ. That means Messiah, the King of the Jews, and he should be honored. Verse 2 announces clearly who this story is really all about. Look at verse 2. Where is the one who is born king of the Jews. Now, this is about a newborn child destined to be king of the Jews. Now, in and of itself, that would not be a a really great thing, a huge thing, being king of the Jews. I mean, you know, being king of anything is a big deal, but king of the Jews, not as much as you might think. Uh, Somewhere alive, in other words, somewhere alive in America right now, there are at least three, maybe four children or young people under the age of 18 who are going to be president of the United States someday, right? But nobody really cares about this or sets out to find them and honor them, all right? And we don't know who they're going to be, but verse 4 makes clear what the magi really mean or the wise men really mean by king of the Jews, and this is important. It says, look at verse 4, after assembling all the chief priests and the experts in the law, those are the scribes, right? The, the, the lawyer, the, um, the Bible law experts, all right? He, or Herod, asked them where the Christ was to be born. So he's focused on the where. Now, Herod had been called king of the Jews by the Senate in Rome for almost 40 years. So he's not liking it. Somebody else might be uh, king. But no one calls Herod Messiah. No one calls Herod Messiah. So now, both Christ in Greek and Messiah in, in Hebrew and Aramaic mean one who has been anointed. Nobody Nobody says that Herod's anointed. Christ means Messiah, right? It it means the long-awaited God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule. That's what Messiah means. And bring in the end of history and establish the kingdom of God and never die or lose his reign. So we don't know how the wise men got their information, but everybody's sort of stirred up about this, right? That there's such a king coming, but it's clear that Herod got this message. These guys are not searching for an ordinary human successor to him. That's not who they're searching for. They're searching for the final king to the end of all kings, right? And of course, unlike Anna and Simeon in Luke chapter 2, that's the last thing Herod is looking for. 
He didn't even know the simple scriptures about where the Messiah was to be born. He doesn't know any of that. He doesn't actually care about any of that. He just cares, cares about himself. So he asked the scribes, all right, or the lawyers in the law, he asked them, and, and, and the one text that they focus on is Micah 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through you know, almost uh, all the way through verse 6. And it says, as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant amongst the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. Now that doesn't sound actually very extraordinary either. And the reason is that the only purpose for which the scribes quoted the text was to answer Herod's question. That's, that's it. Where? And the answer is Bethlehem. All right, Bethlehem. But what if, just think of it, what if Herod had asked them who instead of just where? Who? They might have read on in Micah chapter 5, and they would find at least uh, these two verses, one whose origins, right, in, are, are in the distant past. In verse 4, it says, he will assume his post and shepherd the people by the Lord's strength, by the sovereign authority of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for at that time he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth. So, so this king is not just coming into being um, through the womb of his mother Mary. It says, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. Or as the Gospel of John uh, writes, he says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was fully God. And this king would not be limited in his realm to Israel. He would be great to the ends of the earth. So that's the first truth. And this is why worship is on their mind, the mind of the, of the magi, the mind of the wise men. It, and, and it leads us to the second truth in this text about the Christ or Messiah. Here's the next one. Uh, Jesus is to be worshipped not just by Jews, but by all nations of the world. Now, the wise men represent all the nations, all right, because they're from the east. So they represent all the nations. And, and you have to notice that Matthew doesn't tell us about the, the shepherds coming to visit Jesus in the stable. No. His focus is immediately on foreigners, actually. Foreigners coming from the east to worship Jesus. Look at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? So Matthew's gospel, he's got an intention here and an agenda. And he's speaking to some specific people and he has something that he wants, uh, a picture he wants to paint, uh, so to speak, and things that he wants to feature. Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus at the beginning and the end of his gospel as a universal Messiah for the nations, not just the Jews. For everybody. So here's the first worshipers, and the first worshipers are astrologers or wise men, um, not from Israel, but from the east, maybe even Babylon. Now that's significant. They were Gentiles. 
They were unclean. And at the end of Matthew, the last words of Jesus are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. So Matthew begins and ends, right? He opens the door for us Gentiles to rejoice in the Messiah And it added proof that he was the Christ, the Messiah, because uh, one of the repeated prophecies was that the nations and kings would, in fact, come to him as the ruler of the world. For example, in um, Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet Isaiah, in verse 3, he writes something um, pretty important. He says, nations come to your light Kings to your bright light. So, so Matthew adds proof to the Messiahship of Jesus and shows that he is Messiah, a king and a promise fulfiller for all the nations, not just Israel, for us, not just Jews. And that's actually really important. Here's uh, the third thing uh, that we're going to point out or this third truth about joyful worship. God commands the universe to make his son known in worship. Now, this is, I love this part right here. This is big. This is the great goal of, in, in all the things that God has created, that, that God's son would be known and worshiped. This is the great goal. Over and over, the Bible kind of baffles me and, and sort of shocks me in a way about how certain things happened. How did this star, by the way, get the Magi, the wise men, from the east to Jerusalem? You know how far up the stars are, all right? You got to think about this a little bit. It's not like you're on the, like, like the stars guiding uh, people on the ocean um, kind of thing. It's not quite like that. It doesn't work like that. Why? Because... It does not say that it led them or went in front of them. It only says in verse 2, look what it says. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, how did that star go before them in the little, by the way, if you do a little work here, the five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as verse 9 says it does. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they left, and once again, the star they saw when it rose, led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. So how did the star stand over the place where the, the, the child was, by the way? How did that happen? I mean, stars are like really far out there. It, it, I don't know. The answer is, actually, um, we don't know. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no good answer to that. We don't know. There are numerous efforts to explain it in terms of, you know, planets, comets, supernovas, um, miraculous lights, some craziness like that. But here's the truth. I don't think you're going to know. We just don't know. And I want to encourage you not to become preoccupied with developing theories that are only speculative or conjectural. In, in the end and have very little spiritual significance. See, when people, if you get preoccupied with these things, like how the star worked and how the Red Sea is parted, oh, there's a good one. How did that happen? 
Well, the wind, or I don't know, it, it was only the steep, and just stuff like that. Come on. Or how manna fell from the sky, or how Jonah survived in the belly of a fish. There's a good one, right? I was just watching Aquaman, the movie. And then he got accused of getting that idea from Pinocchio. Where did Pinocchio get that idea? And how about how the moon turns to blood? All these things, if you get all caught up in that, uh, generally you, you don't see, you're, you're, you're the kind of person that's going to get focused and sidetracked and you're not going to see, you're not going to cherish deeply the great central things of the gospel, the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying or a setting apart work of the Holy Spirit, the glory of Christ's return at the final judgment. See, these things are always seem to be things that sidetrack us, right? And, and there's no balance in focusing on those things with, with um, and I think it robs you of really rejoicing. Look, I think the star is important, but here's the part that's the most important. What is clear about the star is that it is doing something that it cannot do on its own. That's the point. It's guiding the wise men to the Son of God to worship Him. There's only one thing in biblical thinking that can be behind that intentionality in the star. God Himself. God Himself. So the lesson is actually really clear. God is guiding the wise men... Gentiles, foreigners to Christ to worship him, and he is doing it, God is doing it by exerting universal or global influence and power to get it done. Luke shows God influencing the entire Roman Empire so that the census comes at the exact time to get the Virgin Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy with her delivery. God orchestrates all of that in a way that only God can do. Matthew shows God influencing the star in the sky to get the foreign wise men, the Magi, to Bethlehem so that they can worship him. This is God's design. He's He did it then, and he's still doing it now. He wants the nations, all the nations, to worship his son. This is God's will for everybody, and everybody in your family, everybody in the office that you work at, everybody in the school that you're, um, and all your classmates, everybody in your neighborhood, and everybody in your home. This is the goal that God has here. At the beginning of Matthew, we have a, Come and see, kind of part of the story. But at the end of Matthew, it's go and tell. The Magi, the wise men, came and saw. We're to go and tell. But what is not different is the purpose of God and his desire to gather the nations to worship his son. Don't miss that part. The magnifying of Christ in the worship of all the nations. That's the reason the world exists. That's the reason. Someday you'll get to ask God about the star and how that worked. 
I got some questions. Here's number four. Number four, this truth. Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him. You can't help but notice this, although I don't think it's Matthew's main point, bringing out opposition for those, um, you know, in in the middle of this. This is, uh, it's inescapable as part of the story, right? In the story, there are two kinds of people who don't want to worship Jesus, the Messiah. The first kind are the people who simply do nothing about Jesus, right? He's a non-entity in their life. This group is represented by the chief priests or the scribes, the experts in the law, right? Look at verse 4. After assembling all the chief priests and the experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Well, what do they do? They tell him, and that was that. Back to business as usual. The sheer silence, think of this, the sheer silence of inactivity of these leaders is overwhelming in view of the magnitude of what has happened and what is going to happen. And notice, look at verse 3, when King Herod heard, heard this, he was alarmed and all of Jerusalem with him. In other words, the rumor was going around that someone thought the Messiah was born. That's the rumor. The inactivity on the part of the chief priests, I think it's actually stupefying. Why not go with the wise men of the Magi? But they're not interested. They don't want to worship the true God. They got other things to do. The second kind of person that's represented, the person that doesn't want to worship Jesus, are the kind who are deeply threatened by him. You know, that's Herod in the story, right? He is really afraid when you think about it. So much so that he schemes and he lies and he commits. He commits mass murder just to get rid of Jesus. So today, those two kinds of oppositions, I think they come against Christ and his worshipers. Indifference and hostility. I feel like we battle this a lot. We battle it a lot inside and outside of the church in lots of ways. What's the side note lesson right here? Don't be one of those groups of people. Don't be in either one. Let this Christmas be the time when you reconsider the Messiah and consider what it is to actually worship him. I think it will bring you true joy. So let me close with this fifth truth in this story, and it's, it's going to take just a little bit to pull this out, but hang with me. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and ascribing worth to Christ with sacrificial gifts. Now, I'm going to just jump to what does this have to do with me because I think you'll, you'll get it. It'll, it'll flesh out. Watch this. There's four pieces to that definition of worship, and all four are grounded in the text, all right? The wise men ascribe authority to Christ by calling him king of the Jews. Now, we walk through that. Verse 2, where's the one who is born king of the Jews? And so now we know what that means. B, the magi or the wise men ascribe worth to Christ by falling down before him. You saw that. Look at verse 11. Watch this. As they came to the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they bowed down and they worshiped him. Now, Falling to the ground and bowing down like this is what you do to say to someone else when you are, you're saying you are 
in high standing and I am lowly. You are of greatness and lofty importance and I am lowly by comparison. I love that they are doing that. It defines more of what real worship is and how much of an action it is. How about C? The joy in these um, ascriptions of authority and greatness, it's, it's found in verse 10. When they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. This is actually pretty profound. It would have been a lot to say they rejoiced, right? And, and like I said, joy is like one of these things that is misunderstood. It would have been more if they had great joy, all right? But even more to say they shouted joyfully. They shouted. They shouted. They, there was a little yelling going on here. And what was all the joyful shouting about, they were on their way to, to, the, to Messiah. They were almost there. And I can't avoid the impression that uh, then that the true worship, all right, true worship, joyful worship is not just ascribing authority and worth to Christ. It's doing, doing this joyfully. And I think you could get a little loud with it. I did that on purpose. It's doing it because you've come to see something about Christ that's so desirable that being near him to ascribe authority and worth to him personally, it's overwhelming. It's compelling you to shout it out loud. Sometimes I think we need to be a little more emotional, a little more animated in our corporate worship than we are. All right, let's keep going because uh, there's something, it's, it just keeps getting better. Part of worship is ascribing worth with sacrificial gifts. Now, here's this gift part I started out with. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and worth to Christ with sacrificial gifts. See, worship to God is not given to God with human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't, we don't have anything that he needs. Okay. So the gifts of the wise men, think this through a minute, are not given by way of assistance or meeting needs. Hey, Mary and Joseph, we noticed you weren't doing that good, so we brought some stuff. No. It would dishonor somebody of royalty, a monarch, if a foreign visitor came with royal care packages. That's not what they're doing. Hey, this will put this in the college fund for Jesus. He's going to need it, you know. These gifts are not meant to be bribes either. That's not what they're doing. Think of it like this. The gifts intensify the desire for Christ himself the same way actually fasting does that. Have you thought about fasting? Uh, we'll focus on prayer and fasting in the new year. And I usually do that in January. But the purpose of fasting is to do something. It's supposed to intensify your time with the Lord, your prayer time in particular with the Lord, when you deny yourself of food and then you focus all that energy and attention that you would be towards eating and, and you deny yourself that and you focus on the Lord, it actually intensifies your prayer time and your connection with the Lord. That's what the purpose of fasting. When you give a gift to Christ like this, it's, it's, it's a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not 
the hope of getting rich with the things that come from you, that's not it. That's not worship. I've not come to you for your things. I've come to you for you. And the desire is intensified and demonstrated by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you, Lord God, more. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy. (laughs) I don't know if you've thought about it like that. You see, when you do this, you're saying more earnestly and more sincerely and more authentically, you, God, are my treasure, not these things. I think that's what it means to worship God with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh more than they represent all these other symbolic things regarding the burial spices and all that kind of stuff. I think it's something to think through. So my prayer is that God would use the truth of this text to motivate us to worship joyfully, to worship Christ more joyfully, to worship Christ himself this year. It's easy to get caught up in all the stuff, isn't it? We generally point that out almost every year. But I'm, I, my prayer is that we would see from our heart, Lord Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel. All nations will come and bow down before you. God commands the world to see that you are to be worshipped. So whatever opposition I find, Lord God, I'm praying that I would joyfully ascribe authority and worth to you and bring, I'm bringing my gifts to say that you alone can satisfy me and bring joy to my heart, not this stuff. Maybe this year you can think like that a little bit more. Why and what are you doing? What are you looking for? What are you trying to get? from this worship stuff that we do together. Oh my goodness, we're supposed to be doing it together, I think joyfully, because joy comes when you do it in community, in a corporate manner. But I think that, I think that we should bring our gifts and say, That God alone is the one who can satisfy and bring joy to our heart. Not all the stuff, not all the things. Not all the stuff, not all the things, right? Thank you, Father in heaven. (laughs) Thank you for this really great story in that uh, we don't get to have all the answers. Lord, teach us to be joyful worshipers this Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.